Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, January 12th, 2020, and this is show number 766. Well, we're back from CES, and as a result, we have a massive, massive show for you. Before I get into that, I'm I'm really trying not to just brag about how much fun we had, but we had so much fun at CES, and we saw a whole bunch of Nocilla castaways. We saw Sandy and Shai and J.F. Prasett and his daughter Lila, Dave Ginsburg, Dave Hamilton, John F. Braun, uh, Chuck Joyner, unfortunately, and Norbert Frasso to, uh, to, as a palate cleanser for talking about Chuck. Anyway, we had a great time. We hung out with everybody and really had a blast. But I'm not going to talk about that the whole time. Now, my goal at CES is not to cover the giant TVs or car tech or any of the big stuff at all. You've got, you know, the CNETs to do that. I look for things in several categories. I look for things that solve a problem that might be unusual. For example, one of my favorite things I found was a smart lobster trap. That's a teaser. You're not going to hear that interview for a little while. I also look for the super practical, you need to buy this thing right now kind of device. If I see something interesting in the accessibility category, you know I'm going to be all over it. Finally, I'm not shying away from things that appeal to the female audience. I couldn't quite get myself to do interviews about smart makeup mirrors, but there are some interviews here and there that are for the ladies. Steve produces all of the interviews as video, so you can see these things in action, and then he exports the audio for the podcast. Now, we don't want to swamp out the normal content with too much of CES, so we'll be parsing these out probably around four per week, depending on their relative lengths. It's hard to decide the order because so many of them this time are fantastic. As I say each year, Steve puts a tremendous amount of work into these videos, and my life gets significantly easier for the first few months of the year. I should say that we had one interview that was horrible, and we're just not going to play it. It was a, I think, a dumb product. The guy couldn't explain it very well, and his demo didn't demonstrate it at all, but at least it was really, really expensive, so I'm not going to play that one for you. All right, this week we're going to have four of those interviews, and I'm going to intermingle in a recording from Kaylee that sets up one of the interviews, and we've got a review by Alistair Jenks, and as if that is not enough content, we've got security bits with Bart Bouchats this week. So, go find yourself some heavy traffic to sit in, or, you know, maybe mow the entire back 40 like you've been meaning to for a long time, or book uh, maybe a transoceanic flight, because we have enough content for all of that. This week's Chit Chat Across the Pond is with Bart Bouchats, but it's a light episode, not an installment of Programming by Stealth. Bart returned to the light feed to give us an update on the health tech that he's still using and the new health tech that he's purchased recently. Of course, bike tech fits into the health category, as cycling is what's helped him go from an overweight young man with a weight-related critical condition to a very fit and healthy young man. From there, he talks about more traditional health tech, um, such as blood pressure monitoring, sleep monitoring, thermometers, and more. You can find this episode in your Chit Chat Across the Pond light feed. And as always, you can listen over at podfeed.com. Now, I rarely tell you to listen to other people's podcasts, but I'm going to make an exception just this once. Dave Hamilton had the developer of Carbon Copy Cloner, Mike Bombick, on the Mac Geek Gab this week. He didn't have Mike to talk on about the software that he's developed. Rather, he had him on to explain how the new Apple file system, APFS, has repercussions most of us, including Dave, hadn't really thought about. For example, did you know that if you duplicate large files, 
and then back up your system to external media that's larger than your internal disk, you could actually be creating a backup that you cannot migrate back to your internal drive. Now, it's a bit of a nerdy episode to explain why that kind of thing happens, but it's a case of the repercussions could hit you whether you're nerdy enough to understand it or not. So it's a fantastic episode, and I highly recommend it. Um, it it's important what he's teaching, and it's it's really, really interesting. And Dave asks all the right questions. John F. Brown is there, of course, as well, asking a couple of questions, but it's mostly Dave and Mike talking, and uh, the information is really, really interesting. Let's start up by listening to Kaylee on her latest frustration. Yeah, oh, Katie, the yeah, and I'm definitely a geek. I'm not sure if it's nostalgia, genuine curiosity, frustration with current products, or a desire to shake up the monotony of my gadget life, but as of late, I've been exploring some of my favorite Apple products from days gone by. Some of this started due to my well-documented frustrations with macOS Catalina breaking my Mac Mini, and iOS, iPadOS 13, adding annoyances to my daily life. I ended up switching all the way back to High Sierra for my macOS installations, as well as moving to using my fourth generation iPad as my main iPad. One of the interesting things which happened while exploring older iPads was that I found myself using the headphone jack a lot more than in recent years. Actually, this started when I decided to use an old iPhone 5S I have with some 3.5mm earpods to help me sleep sometimes. I leave the set by my bed because I like having a dedicated setup, which leaves my main iPhone and my AirPods charged for the next day. But this was partially also due to recent frustrations with my AirPods. I purchased a set of AirPods within the first few weeks after they were made available for sale in December of 2016. But here we are three years later and the batteries are frustratingly useless. With the volume set at a reasonable level, the right AirPod lasts for about one to two hours of music playback, but only 20 to 40 minutes of talk time. This is already frustrating enough, but in contrast, the left AirPod is practically dead. It gets about 15 to 20 minutes of audio playback, but only lasts for one to two minutes on a phone call. Additionally, my AirPods would occasionally cut off randomly, despite the battery indicator on my iPhone showing that they had plenty of power left. After reading through some Reddit posts, always a dangerous prospect, but hey, I took some advice from random strangers and attempted to calibrate the batteries by running the AirPods and the case down to zero, then charging everything back up to 100%. This seemed to help slightly. However, there's no doubt that these AirPods are significantly less useful and less fun to use now. I understand the way batteries in modern devices work. They have a limited lifespan and charge capacity. And when that's all she wrote, the Apple Pencil breaks, and now she writes no more. Wait, I think I'm mixing metaphors here, but the point stands. I have functionally usable AirPods, which are growing increasingly non-functional simply because of the battery. And yes, I know that Apple offers a battery service option for old AirPods. You bring your AirPods to Apple, ask for the battery service, part with some of your hard-earned money, and depart with one or more new AirPods. This presents problems for multiple reasons, however. For one, the cost per AirPod, not per set, per AirPod, runs 49 US dollars, which works out to about 102 to 108 US dollars, depending on sales tax. And yet, I remember seeing AirPods on sale over Black Friday for 139 US dollars. So if you can find a good deal on them, it almost makes it not worth it. 
especially if you have the first-generation AirPods like me. And this is my frustration. I have headphones from a decade ago, which still work. I mean, sure, I've had to replace a frayed cable on them a couple of times, but it was possible for me to do so. In contrast, the AirPods are simply not serviceable. Despite Apple referring to this as a battery service, what they really mean is that they're exchanging your AirPods for new ones. The old ones should be disposed of properly. And sure, the legendary predecessor to the AirPods, the iconic EarPods, as well as the classic round design earbuds, had no shortage of problems too. The cables would fray, and over time, they would not work as well as before. But if you were daring enough, you could fix them yourself. Or you could simply buy another set of EarPods for 29 US dollars from Apple. Not 29 per ear, 29 per set. That seems fairly reasonable to me. Whereas Apple seems to be expecting us to pay over 100 US dollars every few years for new AirPods. I know they have Apple Care, but you only get two years. Mine are three years in and have died. Therein lies the problem. They would still be out of warranty. I love AirPods. I really do. But given the long-term usability of the batteries inside, it almost seems as if AirPods are really just headphones as a service. Use them for a few years and then get new ones. Now, perhaps if Apple included AirPods free of charge with new iPhone purchases, Instead of the wired lightning earpods that they include now, my complaint would be irrelevant. The AirPods would most likely last the lifetime of your phone, or at least most of the way, and would be upgraded when you do. But for a company that prides itself on touting its environmentally friendly policies, it's frustrating to see them create a market for a product that is inherently disposable. I know that the batteries inside these are small. Heck, the AirPods themselves are so small that I lost my AirPods has become a mainstream punchline. But despite the size, it's bad for the environment and frustrating for customers. I wish they had designed them in such a way where you could actually replace the battery. I know that might be easier said than done, but one of the things I love about Apple products is that with the right parts and a bit of skill, you can repurpose things and give them new life, even years after Apple has deemed them obsolete. Sure, Apple's current line of portables come with non-user serviceable batteries, but it's just a suggestion, right? I mean, yes, Apple offers a reasonably priced battery service where <gasps> they actually replace the battery in your device instead of replacing the device. Same for iPhones and iPads. Plus, unlike AirPods, you can still use all of the aforementioned products, even with a dead battery, simply by leaving them on AC power. And that's the point. If Apple can replace the battery, then a decade from now, you can too. Or you can find a friend or an independent repair shop to do it for you. And to be fair, this isn't just an Apple problem. It's an industry-wide problem. Things are being made to be disposable, and it's such a wasteful practice. Serviceability extends the natural, useful lifespan of a product, preventing it from simply ending up in a landfill after a few years. I have a dozen old iPhones that have been given new lives as game show and quiz controllers through a simple, cost-efficient battery swap. And all of these frustrations have led me on a journey back into, among other things, wired headphones, imitation AirPods, and repurposing gadgets which many consider obsolete. But that's all a story for another time. Although I will say, a little birdie tells me that 
Perhaps it is possible to make AirPods-like headphones with replaceable batteries? Tell me more, Allison. And until next time, Bye-bye! Recently, Kaylee did a uh, review on the nocilic ass talking about how aggravated she is that she has to throw away her perfectly functioning AirPods because the batteries don't work anymore. So I hunted down a company called Akuva that is working on headphones with replaceable batteries, but this isn't a headphone that's like the size of a small piece of bread. Exactly. We are so I'm with like Amy, Amy Jackson right now. Yeah. So we're more the size of a pea. So we can solve that battery problem. We have something called a hot swap battery. So what it happens is when you are wearing your earbud device and after about four or five hours when the battery is going dead and you're just into a phone call, all you have to do is quickly pop out the battery in your charging case right here. You have additional batteries, which I'm sorry, wasn't ready for this, uh, that you would just take out. You would put in your dead one, put this back in. It takes about 15 seconds when you get good at it and you're back on. You are off for no more than 15 seconds and you have enough battery life for about... Turn your head this way, Turn your head this way so he can... No, the other side. Oh, <laughs> sorry. So the, the, uh, these ear pods are very small. They're, they're almost flush with her, her ear and they're not much bigger than the ear canal there. No, you're absolutely right. And the reason is, is because most earbuds, the retention comes from the outside of the ear canal. That's why they're so big and bulky. But ours, uh, given our patented comfort seals, we have probably the deepest uh, uh, penetration, penetration into the yeah. Yeah, uh, retention that you can get. And then we have these wonderful comfort seals that when you take them off, She's Sorry. pulling it off right now. It's got three yeah, sort of—it's uh, three sort of flanges that are that are yeah. holding on to her ear there. So when you look at this tri-tier uh, seal, I don't know if you can see it from here, but they are vented, so you'll never feel occluded. Oh, I like that. Well, yeah. And then it has um, a built-in wax guard, which is also wonderful, so wax will not get in the receiver. And then you just put—you know—change them for sanitary reasons when you need to and then you just pop it back in your ear. So the reason we can be so small is because our retention comes from within the ear canal, not the, on the, out, the outside part. And then the th one other thing we have that's really awesome is we have a built-in bone conduction mic. Oh, yeah. okay. So when you're on a call, say in a room like this, we are 100% noise canceled. You will not hear anything in the background. Because the microphone is only the bone conduction. It's only the bone conduction hearing through jaw. So we have some pretty unique stuff. And for the traveler, we have a voice translation, which is real time. Oh, come on. Yep. Nope. Real deal. And we're also um, really going for a market of about 20 through 55, 60. And we want to address people who have mild hearing loss. So this same device, there is an amp where they can do an in-situ hearing test with this in their ear. It'll burn their thresholds to the device and they will get that volume and nobody will know if they're wearing an amplifier or a wearable. Oh, that is really, really cool. Yeah, I did like want to think we're forward, forward thinking here. I do want to say for the audio listeners that the case that she was describing where she's got the earbuds in the case, but then she flipped the bottom of it open to get to the spare batteries. And the spare batteries will be kept in here. And are they charging when they're in yes. the case? So oh, so they it's charging, charging on one side and on the other side at the right. same time. Wow. Yeah, so the, the case is not that much bigger than an AirPods case. Not at all, no. One so side's device, the other side, 
batteries charging. Oh. And Apple says it can't be done. Uh, it can't be done. <laughs> we did So it. the name of the company is Akuva. What's the name of the product? Uh, it's the, uh, the product's name is also Akuva. Uh, it's actually the Akuva Extreme with the hot swap battery and the Akuva Amp is for the amplifier. Oh, that is really cool. So uh, we are in Eureka Park. Do you have an idea of when this is going to come to market? Uh, yeah, we're hoping for Q2, Q3. Oh, and really? Of this year? Yeah, we're very, we're almost done. It's oh, almost done. fantastic. I really, uh, I really yeah. wish you guys a lot of luck. This Thank is a cool product. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. Do you have a price point yet? Uh, the Akuva Amp is going for $500 uh, on sale here for $350 for pre-orders. And the Akuva Extreme, how much is that? Uh, she's asking a colleague, 250. right? $250. $250. So, so the amp is actually another physical device? No, it's the same device. It's just with the, uh, you are actually just getting the app with it to increase the thresholds. Do I got you. I got you. I thought you had to buy both, and that was no. starting to get real expensive. No, okay. not at okay. all. So if you need the hearing amplification, you get the, the uh, Akuva amp. You get the Kuva Extreme if you don't. Exactly. All right. I, I caught up. Thank you yeah. very much, Amy. This is really, really cool. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I do have to say that the Akuva headphones, while intriguing, are very much in the prototyping stage right now. And in fact, Amy told us after we finished recording that they're working on the tooling. So if you look at them in the video, you'll see they're, you know, they're not really productized yet. One other thing, too, Joe asked her after, uh, sorry, Joe LaGreca was with us. That's why I forgot to mention at the beginning. Joe LaGreca was with us at uh, during most of the show, and he asked her after the interview how long the batteries will last in the charging case, which I hadn't asked about, and her answer was two years. So I'm afraid that even with this innovative method to give us replaceable battery earbuds, we might still have a dead product after the same two years. Now, note that for AirPods, Apple does sell replacement cases for $59 for the non-wireless version, $69 for the wireless one, and $89 for the AirPods Pro case. Anyway, just something to keep in mind. Maybe Akuva can work on having the batteries in the case replaceable as well. When we were at one of the press events, Niha Zoshi recognized me from our YouTube videos and told me that she really enjoys our CES coverage. She explained that she had a product at CES as well and asked if we could stop by her booth. I'm really glad we did because I'm going to play that interview for you right now. We're going to talk about a subject that is something unusual for a tech podcast, but we're going to talk about menstrual pain. Now, I'd like everybody, we're just going to take a heartbeat, make all your little fifth grade jokes in your head right now about this subject, and then realize that we're talking about something that affects I would say approximately 50% of the population of, of, the, of the earth. So um, I'm here with Niha Zoshi, and she's going to talk about a device that they're developing here to alleviate menstrual pain. Absolutely. Hi, Allison, and thank you so much for covering us. This is this is a very small portable device. We are a Silicon Valley-based company, a startup. Uh, we are Captain Group, so we have two verticals prominently, Captain Eco and Captain Well. So we have been in this business for over three years now. Of, of health... Yeah, in health and wellness, we would like to define ourselves as tech wellness company. And, uh, you know, it's it, this device is called Anna. We, Anna? Anna, 
A-N-N-A. Okay, for the audio listeners, I'm going to describe it. It's something maybe about five or six inches long. Yeah. It's kind of a white rubbery plastic with a little bulgy thing on it. Absolutely, yeah. And then it's pretty light. It's 0.01 LB to be precise. Okay, it's very, so, very soft too. It's very soft, yeah. So, you know, I mean, one little, little thing to worry about, right? It's, you know, you don't have to worry about the texture of it when you put it on your body. Right. So the way it functions is this little device uh, is so small that it goes right in your pocket or can be attached to your belt. Uh, the one we have right now is a wireless pad and we do have a wired pad as well which goes here. So it's got a, uh, looks like micro USB? It's got a micro USB, so you, perfect. So you carry a charger in your pocket? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, the wireless pad, you take it off, so it's at the back, you take it off. So it's like leaves an adhesive? It's an adhesive pad. Okay. You take it off and you put it uh, where it hurts the most. So, okay. you know, being a woman and suffering from menstrual pain, it hurts me on my abdomen and my back and my legs and everywhere, right? So it, it conquers up to nine different pain points. So let's talk about how this actually works. Right. So the way it works is uh, it uses heating mechanism to target the spots where it hurts the most. So your brain leaves out signals, uh, pain signals, right? We block that pain signals for you. Oh, okay, just with heat? Just with heat, yeah. So and how is it targeted specifically towards menstrual cramps, though? I mean, would that work if I just had a leg cramp from running? Oh, yeah, great question. So what happens is that when your body feels the pain, feels the, the intensity, the intensity is different depending on the pain. So if you sprain your ankle, for instance, that pain is different from menstrual pain. There are levels, right? So... So when there are these levels of intensity of pain, menstrual pain is the highest, and we hit that point with this device. So you just slap that on your body wherever it hurts, and then yeah, it's going to alleviate you, yeah, it? Yeah, sure. So this little device, this is separate off the wireless pad. You put this little device in your pocket, or you can attach it to your belt. And you take off the adhesive pad. That's uh, that's comes with the device, and you put it. So I put it here. For oh, I I am now finally getting it. So the, so this little puck thing is what goes into your belter on your belter so, and your. Sorry, I can't open it right now because it's a prototype. But um, but you would take the, you would take the little puck piece and you yeah. put that in your pocket. Yeah. Okay. So the bulge that you see, that's the device. Gotcha, and it's right. got it's got some buttons on it here. Uh, yeah. It's got a plus and then a little wavy thing, an M and a... Yeah, I'll t I'm, I'm going to talk to you about that. Okay. So this is the intensity of pain. Uh, everybody is different. The plus and minus? So everybody is different, right? So I might pay, uh, feel pain to the highest of intensity than you, for instance, right? So I can turn this on to the highest intensity. Now, the best thing about this product is it's a smart device. So it connects to your mobile app and you can control everything from there. Oh, okay. You don't want to give someone else access to that then because they'd be yeah. dialing you up and down, right? <laughs> no, not my husband. He'll know my mood swings. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We don't want that. So um, is this, so you've got a prototype now. Have you been doing testing on, on women? Uh, no, we haven't started that yet, but this is FDA approved. We have tested this uh, oh, wow. this product, yeah. So okay, it's safe so you have to go. Test on some people, like yourselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean the internal team, yeah. But it's it's safe to go, definitely. Wow. And yeah. uh, when do you expect to bring something like this to market? I'm sorry. When do you expect to bring Anna to market? So somewhere around March or April. We are uh, right now at the prototype stage. We are manufacturing the products right now. So. Yeah. Okay. So you would go into testing it in March. 
we have tested it. We are very confident about the product. Oh, okay. <laughs> I misunderstood. I thought you said you hadn't tested it. Okay, yeah. great, great. So do you have a price point on it? Right now, we are giving it out for 40 to 50% discount uh, for, for CS, for the pre-orders. But our MSRP is 120 120 and you only buy one of these or you buy you have to buy replacement sticker things right yeah so the device doesn't need to buy you don't need to buy the device again right. you can buy the adhesive pads separately uh, once they run out very good and uh, where would people go to find out more about anna uh, our website it's called www.captainwell.com captainwell.com yeah. all right think uh, anything else Absolutely. I want to tell you about a very cool feature. So, uh, you know, we are always busy the entire day. You wear the device, you forget to turn it off. So we also have an auto turn off that turns off after 60 minutes of consistent use. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, you don't want to run out that battery. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> well, very good. I think this is an interesting product and I don't believe I've ever heard of anything like it. That's amazing to know. Thank very you. Very nice to meet you too, Niha. Thank you so much, Allison. So at the uh, tail end of this episode, you're going to hear Bart talking in Security Bits about a podcast that he recommended called Hackable. And they had a section on, or the, the episode that he recommended was about phishing. And uh, I happened to listen to it while I was power washing our sidewalk this afternoon. And it occurred to me that when Niha walked up to me and said she recognized me from my YouTube videos and that she really, really liked them and she liked our CES coverage, my first thought was, wow, not that many people listen to it or watch those. So I'm really kind of surprised that somebody would recognize me. And then I realized this afternoon, she never said, I like your podcast. She never said anything about Podfeet. She didn't mention Forbes and Cake Pops. I actually think she might have very cleverly tricked me into going to her booth. And I mean, I say good on her. She did a good job. And I really thought she was uh, was someone who had, had watched us. But I am just willing to bet that she didn't. But in any case, I think it was an interesting interview and an important product. So I'm glad she did her fishing, if that's what it was. If it wasn't, uh, hi, Neha. I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you saw me. This next interview was probably in our top five interviews we did at CES. Now, it's not just because the products are awesome, which they are, but it's also because of something awesome and hilarious that happened in the middle of the interview. You're going to be able to understand this from listening, but you might also want to go back and watch the video we put on podfeed.com afterwards to see exactly how funny all of this was. Well, you've heard us talk the virtues of Sandman before. Last year and a couple years before that, it's a uh, it's a clock, but it's the best clock we've ever had beside our bed. Steve's in love with his. And last year we talked to Alex Trammell about it, and we're here to bother him yet again. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? He's been talking smack to me. Now he's going to act all polite. Yeah, of course. I would never talk smack in front of a camera. <laughs> there you go. So what's, uh, what's new with the Sandman? So the Sandman clock, as Steve knows, is almost perfect almost it's not perfect oh no we, we've done it we've perfected it okay we're done what have you done <laughs> so uh we had two main uh i don't want to say complaints customer feedback the first one is the buttons were a little too easy to press now the buttons are recessed and they have a really nice tactile feel and they're on the back and they're on the back oh they were on the back of the original oh they were yeah they're oh, on the back oh, of the original okay. oh that's right you'd grab the clock and you'd push it exactly you grab the clock to clean it oh i want to clean the clock oh i turn on the alarm Yep. That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, that's why the alarm would go off sometimes. Sure. Right. Sorry sorry almost about that. Perfect. It, it, it was almost perfect. It really was. Now it's but perfect. But it was also really light. Yes. It was, 
excellent segue. It was also really light. So we literally put a steel bar in here. <laughs> I swear it's a steel bar. So if you have a cat or you're tired and you whack it, it's always going to land back on its feet. All Just right. like a cat. I love it. I love it. So that's available when? Q4. It also has an app with BLE, so you can set multiple alarms uh, via the app, and it will work on here. Oh, yeah. that's fun. So Q4, do Q4, you have a price point on that? $49.99. Oh, nice, nice. All right, but you got some bigger clocks. We Let's do. back up. This is CES. <laughs> like the shuffle. This is CES, so you need all the you know gizmos and gadgets and bells and whistles. So this is the Sandman Doppler. So this has got Wi-Fi and Bluetooth in it, as well as uh, Alexa. There it is. See, it worked. Uh, it's got speakers in it, two microphones on the top. It's got a light sensor on top. So no matter where your you know your light is, it'll always dim nicely. It's also got yeah. Go for, ahead. for the uh, for the audio only audience, now we're looking at a clock that's a fair amount bigger. It's what maybe four inches tall and maybe a foot long, something like that. It's a bigger, blockier thing, but it's a beautiful color of blue. It is. And just for Steve, he changed the color of the uh, numbers to orange. To orange, yes. The numbers are adjustable to any color you want. Uh, we have 29 different color options for the front, um, and you have also have weather on the top, and you can have, oops, sorry? That's, that's the bottom. Sorry? Weather yep. on the bottom? Yeah, someone hit me, that's my excuse. You're just all, all I'm all over up. the place. All shook up. So there's weather on the bottom, the oh, bottom. In the day. I in need the, the day, for sure. Yep. <laughs> yeah. what day it is. Yeah, day of the week. We've also got temperature and humidity here that's adjustable. And then we have a light bar up on top, and that light bar is customizable, so you can have the... Um, your traffic, you can have your commute show, so it'll be green, 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 red, green, green, green. You can also have your stock show up, tell you if your stocks are up or down. Um, we have a couple other features as well. So what, what do you need Alexa for with a, with a, uh, a clock? So since this is gonna live by your bedside, right. there's a couple uses which I really like. So now that I have one, oh, now, yeah. Oh. Sorry, Shaquille O'Neal is standing right behind us, and Steve is no longer filming yeah. Alex whatsoever. He's just talking it's to cool. Shaq. It's cool. I'm just as big, I weigh just as much, and I'm just as impressive. <laughs> Let's be honest. Okay, this is going to be the best interview ever. We wow. were actually going to look for him because we heard he was going to be here today. He is really tall. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. Maybe he should get a Sandman. What do you think? He really should. I yeah. think he should. Can you he imagine him putting his hand around the Doppler? But he would put it around it this way, not right. that way. Right? Sure. Well, this could be a great interview. So you Tremendous. were talking about a clock. You were talking about Alexa. Uh, was I? I don't when, remember. When Steve lost his, his I just thought saw Shaq. <laughs> All right. Um, oh, right. So let's say you know you're having an argument with your partner in bed, and you want to know how tall Shaq is. Yes. You could just ask her. He's seven foot one. You know that. Yes, I actually do. How do you know that? Because I have a photo on my phone that I just finished showing the Ring Video Doorbell people okay. about how their their camera looks up so high, Shaq could be at my door and have about four inches of space above his head. And you specifically called out Shaq. And this is before Shaq that, ever worked that, for them. That, oh, Shaq works for them? Yeah, he's oh a spokesman God, for so, Ring. That's he's why he's here. He's a spokesman for everybody. <laughs> Except for me. Although he was in my booth. But, that's right. Kind of. To kind of. Kind of. So yeah, um, that so, okay, also, so, white noise generation is so, really nice. You can say, oh, you know, play rain sounds, okay. and you can fall asleep to rain sounds. So, I'm being stupid. I just realized, you mean this is an Alexa smart speaker? Yes. There we go. Coming the, full circle. It's built so it's in. it's like an echo, but... It's embedded. Okay. Yes, it's just like an echo. Very Except cool. it doesn't have a screen, so it dims all the way down, so it doesn't blind you in the middle of the night. Which is its main feature. Number it's one feature. Also, there's no camera. 
Ah. I don't want a camera in the bedroom. I don't either. Neither does my girlfriend. Nobody wants to see that. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. Okay. <laughs> you got me. Yeah. Uh, so, when is the uh, the Sandman Doppler going to be out? Q1 of this year. Oh, really? And yes. price point on that? $199.99. $200. That's nice. That's nice. Where are you going to be selling it? Everywhere. No, our website, sandmanclocks.com and Amazon. Very good. Thank you very much, Thank Alex, you. for staying incredibly focused throughout this. I only this. got top and bottom wrong about three times. Okay, so uh, that was hilarious in the middle when uh, when Jack was there. But the other funny thing that happened is right after we were done talking to Alex, his uh, two of his employees came. He was the CEO. Two of his employees come running over and they go, oh, my gosh, Alex, he was at our booth while you were talking to her. He was like he gave us his card. He's talking about does he's going to put Sandman in his in his hotels or his restaurant or something like that. And he was he was going crazy with us talking to us. It was so cool. And he just looks at me and he's like, and I was talking to you. You know, it was really, really funny. I enjoyed the heck out of that. Um, another thing I want to make sure I tell people is last year. Uh, they talked about the Sandman Doppler. And so I said, well, we asked him on the side afterwards, I thought you talked about that last year. And he explained to us that they had two separate critical part manufacturers go out of business and stop making the critical parts they had. So you, that's why they still haven't come out. And I know at least uh, Bart, at the very least, has pre-ordered it and was kind of like, yeah, when is that thing coming out? So now they're actually coming out. So he had real good reasons why, but he explained what they've done. And uh, he was super nerdy. He had like the actual circuit boards there to point at the parts that weren't there. So anyway, we had a lot of fun with Alex, and uh, I think it was great. Let's switch gears a little bit here. Alistair Jenks is back with a review of a product he's moved to in order to divorce himself from the clutches of Adobe for photo editing and cataloging. Apple's Aperture was hung out to dry, Adobe's Lightroom changed to a subscription model, and Apple Photos started out and continues to be severely limited. What was I going to do to manage and process my growing DSLR photo collection? Initially, I found Luminar from Skylum. At the time, it didn't have a digital asset management or DAM capability, but it was promised. Once the DAM arrived, it was passable but lacked key features I needed. Those features were also promised, but I gave up waiting when a whole new version was released with sexy new AI features, while still lacking some basics in the DAM functionality. I was looking again recently when I stumbled across the newly launched DxO Photolab 3. I started a 30-day free trial and three weeks later I purchased it at a discounted launch price. Let me tell you why I decided this is the software for me. First up, photo management, the dam. It's not up to the same standard as Lightroom, but it is good enough to get the job done. It supports pick and reject, star rating, projects and, importantly for me, hierarchical keywords. I should note here that one weakness is all this metadata is stored in a database internal to the software and not in the photo files or other portable location. There is discussion in the support forums about addressing this, but so long as one remains with Photolab 3, it's not a problem. Photolab can read keywords out of files if they're already there. Because Lightroom could write them to the files, that means Photolab can easily search my existing photos. It should be noted that any exports can, and by default do, contain the keywords. The basic management of photos is by reference. 
photo lab lets you put your photo files where you want and it will not move them unless you say so. In fact, a core principle of Photolab is that it will never touch your original files. For convenience, you can move files between folders within Photolab. You can also create projects, which are logical groupings of photos independent of their folder location. Photolab does not have a database of thumbnails. Rather, it generates them on the fly as you view folders. There does appear to be some amount of caching, but it is no slouch when rendering thumbnails anyway, managing about two per second on my low-end Mac Mini. Next, we come to photo processing, and this is where Photolab 3 shines. The logical way to get the best out of your camera is to understand its strengths, weaknesses, and foibles. Photolab has this knowledge built into what they call optics modules. Each optics module, which is downloadable on demand from within Photolab, contains the characteristics of a camera and lens combo, which enables the software to automatically correct distortion, vignetting, aberration, sharpness, and more. Each is based on laboratory testing of that actual equipment. If there is an optics module to match what your photo was taken with, then you've automatically got the best image from which to start making your editorial choices. The chances of a module you need being available are pretty good. There are over 42,000 of them. I got such great results with new photos that I went back and revisited some old favourite images that I knew were some of my best, and have been startled to find that they can be made even better with Photolab. The level of sharpness achievable is remarkable. The next unique capability is noise reduction. Most image processing software will offer noise reduction, but not all are created equal. Photolab 3 has the prime noise reduction engine, which is the best I've seen. Informed by the optics modules, it performs complex, multi-phase denoising at the first step in the image processing chain, in the case of raw images on the raw data itself. It's not magic, but it can make a moderate noise problem disappear and a heavy noise problem look far more acceptable. The next feature is becoming common in image processing, but again, not all are created equal. Photolab's Clearview Plus is a dehazing tool which cuts through hazy images to bring clarity and depth of colour back. Photolab's implementation is very good and possibly the best I've seen. The final processing feature I will highlight is the HSL colour wheel. The ingenuity of this tool is in its interface. You can select a range of colours on a colour wheel and process this range in your photo with adjustments to saturation, luminance and colour. It's hard to describe but it makes it fairly simple to say target the yellows in your photo to warm them up and the greens to darken them and the reds to fade them and with care leave the orange and blue and pink alone. There's a bit more to it than I've described but I've found I often reach for this tool to perfect my colours because it's so easy to use. There are plenty of other tools, most of which you'd expect to be there. Local adjustments let you apply 14 different adjustments to specific areas of your photo using masks. The masks can be simple gradients or complex content-aware areas using a variety of techniques. There is a smart lighting tool which has an option to use spot-weighted correction. There is a repair and clone tool which does a good job of getting rid of unwanted artefacts in your photos. And there is a preset manager to help you apply common adjustments quickly. The final aspect I will touch on is exporting. Photolab 3 has the standard macOS share menu, plus a couple of native options to export to disk or export to an application. 
the latter writes out your processed file in the file format you choose and launches the selected application to open it. I tried it with Affinity Photo and it works exactly like you would expect. The export to disk function is very flexible. You can use existing presets or create your own and you can pick one or more presets to export in one go. For instance, I have a preset for images I upload to Flickr and another for adding to Apple Photos. I can select a bunch of images, click export to file, select both my Flickr and Photos presets and click OK. Photolab then processes two versions of each image, writing them out to the folders specified in each preset. Combined with an automation tool like Hazel, this can make very short work of your publishing workflows. So what's not so good about Photolab 3? There is the issue previously mentioned about not writing metadata back to the original files, but that is only of concern if you wish to work with originals outside of Photolab. While there is a vignette correction tool, which works very well thanks to optics modules, there is no tool to add a creative vignette, something I call on reasonably often. I don't think Photolab is suited to working across multiple computers because of the way it stores metadata internally. Those are the key things I have come up against in my use cases. So there you have my assessment of DxO Photolab 3, which I have decided will be my primary photo management and processing tool for my DSLR images for the foreseeable future. But there is a twist. I said there is no creative vignette tool, but I can now add creative vignettes right within Photolab. I didn't mention previously, but there are no geometry correction tools in Photolab, yet I can easily fix perspective and volumetric errors right within Photolab. The reason I can do these things is because I have purchased two additional DxO products. DxO Film Pack 5 adds creative processing features such as film emulation, frames, textures and vignetting. DxO Viewpoint 3 adds tools for perspective and volumetric geometry correction. These are separate products, but they show up as extra tools right in Photolab as well. Okay, so it's time to talk pricing. In short, this is not a cheap solution. By the same token, you get what you pay for. The quality of images output from Photolab are the best I've ever seen. The noise reduction and sharpness are, I believe, industry leading. The rest of the tools are as good as, if not better, than the competition. Photolab 3 comes in two editions. The standard edition is $129 and the elite edition is $199. The essential edition lacks some features. Of those I have mentioned, prime denoising, clear view dehazing and multiple exports are only in the elite edition. Note that the essential edition does include an alternative form of noise reduction. Film Pack 5 also comes in two editions. The standard edition is $79 and the elite edition is $129. Here the difference is quite significant. The standard edition comes with 70 presets and creative vignetting. The elite edition expands to 145 presets and a whole bunch more creative effects. Viewpoint 3 comes only in one version which is $79. That brings the complete suite with Elite Editions to $407, which is not for the faint of heart. By sticking to the Essential Editions, that drops to $287. Even that is more than two years worth of Adobe Photographer's Plan, which includes Lightroom and Photoshop. Whether it's right for you will depend on your requirements. Personally, I am glad I took the leap away from Lightroom, first to Luminar and now to Photolab, because now I know what I was missing. Looking back on Lightroom, I have two thoughts. 
how good it was at photo management and how boring it was at photo processing. If you're keen to give any of the DxO products a go, be sure to avail yourself of their free 30-day trial. And keep an eye on their website for specials. Between launch and holiday specials, I've saved myself $117, and I could have saved more if I'd bought all three at the right time. This sounds really, really interesting, and I'm certainly glad there's an alternative to Adobe. You know, I've got no love lost with them. Well, Frank Petrie, also known as Wheels in the chat room, asked us, uh, asked Steve and me if we'd check out the Segway S-Pod at CES. It was a fun interview, but this is definitely a future device, not something that would be at all practical in today's world, but they talk about it being smart for maybe a future smart city. I'm sitting in a Segway S-Pod right now, and I am flanked by Julie Tang and Fu Chen Wu, and they're going to tell you about this device I'm sitting in. It is a uh, some sort of transportation device. Tell me about it. Yeah, so this is actually the concept product that we're bringing to CES for the very first time. And it's a first-class personal transporting pod takes you from places to places with comfort. So I'm sitting down basically in a very lovely reclining, you know, a nice little chair here. And I've got on a lovely helmet, so I'm looking, I'm, I'm safe, of course. But how do I how do I actually move around in this? Yeah, so uh, there's a knob right there. So unlike the other Segway traditional self-balancing product, you have to lean forward and go forward, lean back, go backward. For this one, you simply just, you know, push the little knob forward and, you know, you'll go forward. And push it back, you'll go backward. And you just let it go, it'll break. And also you can, you know, control the directions. The reason is that's, you know, actually shifting the center of gravity of you and the asphalt. Oh, interesting. You're not going to let me push that button, are you? No, tomorrow. <laughs> no, tomorrow. The booth. The booth. Yeah. <laughs> there isn't enough room to drive it around here. So is this, uh, actually I was asking uh, Fu Chen earlier, um, is this a device for the mobility impaired or for uh, unimpaired people? What's the story about it? So uh, we believe that S-Pod is something that we created for everybody, you know. We think this is a great, you know, vehicle for people to get around from A to B. Of course, for people with, you know, physical challenges, it will be perfect and ideal for them to travel from A to B. But also, you know, it can perfectly be for everybody to just, you know, get around places through a very comfortable, premium experience. And then when you are sitting in, you can also uh, see how, like, the texture is, like, suede. It just makes you feel, you know, very premium, you know, the way that, you, you know, you are traveling look like a queen you look like a queen <laughs> I'm sitting here elegantly with my leg crossed and everything here so uh, what kind of speeds are we talking about so the speed for this one goes up to 24 miles per hour and uh, uh, we, we work with our partners that we are able to, you know, customize the speeds depending on, you know, different kind of requirements and needs. And uh, uh, for the top, in one single charge, it can goes up to 40, 43 miles range. Wow. So I'm going to step out for a moment because I want you to point at how does it go? What, what kind of mechanism do we have uh, back here, maybe, Steve? Oh, yeah. You can take definitely, like, you know, some of the, the shots of the wheels. You can see how, like, rigid... A big of the tire is it leverages the Segway self-balancing technology that you know unfortunately we cannot do demo today but essentially you know once you start it off this whole kind of a, a egg shape or the pod will kind of lift you up kind of levitating in a way 
that you are basically self-balanced. So you're tilted back? Tilted back a little bit. And a lot of people get a little nervous, but you know, it's something that you should just sit back, relax, and then here is how you control. Through the knob, you can make directional changes, and then it spins and rotates, you know, by the center. It's through, you know, a gravity kind of center uh, a mechanism. Uh, from Segway's technology. Now it's definitely very comfortable. It's also very, very big. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a small person, but I think I could almost get another one of me in, inside this. So this would be problematic, I would think, on a sidewalk. So essentially, you know, the, the initial design of this concept product is to design for enclosed campuses, for maybe like shopping mall, for airport, where you know, uh, space are. Spacious. A little more space, not yeah, not like on a sidewalk. So, okay. you know, we have like I mean, this like I mean, animation showing you know, uh, Segway's vision in the future of smart cities. We think they could this could be you know some sort of like you know, uh, ride pickup services where people might be able to you know order a ride from a Segway S Pop, and it will become up to you and pick you up when you need it. Well, very good. This looks uh, this. So again, this is a concept car. So I'm not going to ask you when I can buy one or how much it costs. But it looks like you're you're really doing some innovative work here. Absolutely. I think like I mean, uh, from Segway, we really really try to focus on you know technological innovations to really you know um, to see where you know the future. We want to bring the future now, and we also want to make sure the future of smart city is you know something green, you know, um, eco friendly and energy efficient. Very good, very good. If people wanted to learn more, where would they go? Uh, they can definitely visit Segway.com to learn more. And tomorrow we will have an unveiling event at our uh, Segway Nightbot booth at LBCC South Hall. Very good. Thank you very much. This is Absolutely. really cool. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I mentioned earlier that one of my criteria for interviews was to find practical things at CES that you might actually want to buy. Now, we didn't play any of those recordings this week, but the good news is that as we release the recordings, I'll be putting in Amazon affiliate links to any of the currently available products. If you do decide that any of the products we talk about sound like something you need or want, I'd love it if you'd use the provided links. This way, if you buy the product or anything else on Amazon while you're there in that same session, a small percentage of what you spend will go towards funding the production of the PodFeed podcast. Each little bit is pretty small, but because so many of you are awesome about using the Amazon affiliate links, it actually adds up to real money and it doesn't cost you a dime. We now return to our regularly scheduled programming. Well, it's that time of the week again. It is time for Security Bits with Bart Shots. In fact, it's way past time. You took a whole week off. And uh, so now we got four weeks worth of Security Bits going, right, Bart? I think we do, because we wibbly-wobbly timey-wimey'd one. Um, and then we took one out. Oh. So I think it's been four yeah, weeks. Yeah, we split it. That's right, I split it, right? Yeah, so actually, you did a great job, by the way, of... Um, I can't remember what news developed in the week between our two recordings being played, but I think I set the second part up, but, you know, if something horrific has happened, we won't know about it. But I'm sure Alison <laughs> will assert something here, and you did, and it was really well done. So I just want to say thank you for that. Oh, good, good. I'm always worried when I take your chair, or your mic, I should say. Hey, no, no, it, it was good. Um, it was good. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a while. Uh, also, the start of a new decade. I'm continuing to scribble on every piece of physical paper. You know, I write, you know, 201. Scribble, scribble, scribble. Two. <laughs> so, uh, 
I'm gonna. There's gonna be some changes to this segment um, for the new decade. Um, so two things. Uh, the first off is I am changing my personal branding for all of the creative stuff I do. It is all going to come under the name Bartificer Creations. Ah. So that will be the podcasting, the open source, the taming the terminal, the all all of the creative stuff I do is coming under Bartificer Creations. And over time, it's going to take a little bit of doing, but I'm basically going to split off all that stuff into bartfisher.net and keep bartb.ie just for personal stuff. Oh, okay. Okay, That's so you can have your opinions because that's Bart, not your company. Yeah, and it's just the, 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 the creative stuff is not the same as personal stuff, and it's just nice to be able to point someone at basically my portfolio of, you know, useful things I do, the software, the podcasting, that kind of stuff. It's just... It's nicer to keep yeah. those two separate. And then I can be an opinionated blowhard without making everyone cranky. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, and then the other thing is I am refocusing this segment. Um, the original idea, the, the logic behind it was that it should be security news for regular people. That was the brief you gave me all those years ago. Right. And... It was that, but it started to get a bit fuzzier again. And then when I got into this idea of suggested reading, it became really fuzzy because that was my excuse to put anything in. And <laughs> without really thinking about it, I was conflating two things. Stuff that's relevant to me as an IT professional and stuff that's relevant to the Silla Castaways. They're not the same mm. thing. Right, right. So I am going to continue to read all of the stuff that's relative to me as an IT professional because I am an IT professional. But it doesn't all have to go in here. I don't have to find a home for every link. Ah. So while these show notes do not look shorter, they are four <laughs> weeks worth, not two. Okay. I've also, for the most part, found alliterative titles for everything. Uh, <laughs> and the hope really is that we... Basically, I've tried to refocus on the Nocilla Castaways. And in keeping everything relevant to the Nocilla Castaways, why might you care? You're not going to care about everything. No one does. But why might you care? What is the context for this? And anything that doesn't have a context is just not coming into the notes anymore. It's not going to clutter things up. So I'm hoping okay. the focus will do two things. It should make the show notes quicker and easier for me to write. And it should make them more useful to everyone. So I think that's a win-win. Yeah, yeah, that does sound good. Um, does this make your job any easier? Because I know you spend a tremendous amount of time on this for us. The theory is yes. We should, this, has been a bad, <laughs> this has been a bad experiment, right? Because this is four weeks worth of news, so it's really hard to judge. But two <laughs> weeks from say, I looked at I looked at the notes. I'm like, Bart, uh, how is this easier for you? Actually, to be honest, it is actually because the stuff has more logical structure to it. But anyway, two weeks from now, we'll tell a tale as to whether or not my theory is, is in any way vaguely relevant. But I think, I think it is. I think this will work. I think these notes will be easier and I think listeners will actually get more out of it. So we shall see. Yeah, I Feedback think, I think, appreciated. Uh, from from a, a listener perspective, and I count myself as one of those, even though I'm, I'm here right now, um, it feels like, oh, it, this only takes you an hour because that's how long it takes us to record it. That's not how long it takes to create it, right? No, that's not how these things work. You know, as as anyone who's ever had to prepare notes for class or something knows, it, it's yeah, it it takes it's quite a few more hours to go into the creation than the um than the 
you know, reading of it. Um, but in theory, it should be less of my time going into it because I, I need to make it a little bit more me time for this decade. Yeah. So yeah I was yeah, burning yeah. the candles at both ends and it turns out you can only do that for so long. <laughs> well, I, I, one of the things I think about a lot is that uh, when you were heavy set and sedentary and, and had your health threatened, we had lots of time together, right? Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. Plenty of time to screw around and chat and do fun little projects. But now that you're you're healthy and fit and that takes time, you have to move things around. You can't still do everything you want to do if you want to choose that. And choosing that will make you live longer. So let's do that. Yeah, and also it's it's just better for your your mental and physical health. That that time, I mean it is time, right? It's every day I spent time exercising, but that time is both mind and body time. It's It does both, yeah. and it's really important. Yeah. I don't know how people yep. can sort out their thoughts without doing exercise. Like, yeah, you got to have time to think, right? You've got to have think time, yeah. Whether you're jogging along a nice beach in California or cycling through the wind and rain in Ireland, it, it's, <laughs> you know, that's thinking time. It's important. Anyway, really, we well, got mail. We don't often get we mail, got but we mail. got mail. Yeah, we got some feedback from Desmond from Singapore, and this is really interesting what he wrote. He he jumps into it, but then he sets up what he what he's referring to. He says, just want to clarify a law in regards to the Singapore law that Bart was talking about. The law states that if the government finds a post that is considered fake news, the original post is to remain. But Facebook or whoever has to add a section to it stating that the Singapore government considers this fake news and then carry a link to a page that would explain why the Singapore government considers it fake. So all Singaporeans who view this page would be allowed to read the government side of the story, and it would be up to the user to decide who is right. The law never stated the original post is to be edited by the author or Facebook, which I think is what we said. He gave us a link to straighttimes.com where you can read more about it. He says, I mean, you can look at it from a negative point of view and say that another government is treading on people's rights, but you can also look at it from the point of view that everyone should be given a right to read both sides of a statement and make the decision themselves. I know that most of your listeners would believe that Singapore is an authoritarian, authoritarian state, but if you ever live here or talk to others from the USA or UK that live here, that is far from the truth. The government doesn't listen to all conversations and does not shut down dissent if they're allowed to rebut. Whether that is the right thing to do is another question. And I'm critical of my government, but in my view, this law shouldn't be a big issue as nobody needs to change their posts if they don't want to. Yeah, it was great to get that from the uh, horse's mouth from someone actually in Singapore. I, I think yeah. to some extent, um, Desmond is answering both the stereotype and what we actually said, because... I was very careful to to sort of refer to the Singaporean government as being authoritarian-ish or considered authoritarian <laughs> by some because it's, well, it's very spectrum-y, right? It's not like, you know, everyone falls into a neat little pigeonhole of you are authoritarian and you're democratic. It's, it's way fuzzier than that. And Singapore is a very, it, it, it's, it's unique. There are, there are no other countries quite like it. Um, and it, it, I find it very hard. I find it very hard to have a strong opinion on Singapore because on one day I can talk myself into being horrified, and then another day I can talk myself into thinking it sounds great. And <laughs> I flick between the two. 
we had a great dialogue going back and forth between Desmond and and uh, and me and Bart about uh, everything about the country. And Bart, of course, showed that he knows way more about the rest of the world than I do. Um, I did want to tell you, Bart. I just realized on January sixth, Desmond added one more thing. Okay. He said, "Just just want to make a correction in my email. It seems there is a part of the law which requires the user to take down their post, but it hasn't been used as of now." But from the looks of it, I think this part will be used if it is somehow related to national security, an overused phrase that is so loaded. Then there are, of course, appeals to the directive, the highest of which is going to court. So anyway, then he says, I'm going to stop here as I don't think you'll be interested in going any further. So I really appreciate you uh, writing in, Desmond, and, and, uh, and educating us. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the reason this was newsworthy because it was the first time that the law was was used in a in a way that got noticed in the West when Facebook had to make one of these in context. We won't call it a correction uh, rebuttal, I guess. In context rebuttal is probably the right way to say it, which yeah, obviously yeah. made news. Okay, so as well as so feedback and follow-ups is the section I've popped this into in our new way of organizing things. So the other kind of feedback and follow-up is basically things change. So we talk about things and then, you know, news continues to happen about those things we've talked about before. So sort of catching us up, one of the recent gates was the whole thing where Apple and it turns out everyone else was having humans listen to snippets from their audio assistants to basically train them by ranking the performance of the assistant or grading was right. the word Apple used. Right. And I think with contractors. With contractors. So mm-hmm. now Apple do it all in-house and they have put a whole bunch of new stuff, including an opt-in. Uh, but at the time it was done by contractors and it turned out very, very quickly that Apple was just doing what everyone else was doing. Um but for Microsoft the story has developed a sting in the tail. Um The Guardian are reporting from one of their former contractors that Microsoft didn't just contract it out, they contracted it out really poorly. Uh, They described it as having basically no security. It's just horrific reading how careless Microsoft were with these Skype and Cortana recordings. Now, Microsoft say they have addressed all this and like everyone else in the industry, they, they have taken corrective action. But at the time, they sort of, they said very, very, very little. And I think now we can understand why they said so little, because if they'd opened their mouth, they would have had to admit that they were doing it really badly. So they sort of kept quiet and fixed it quietly. And now we've learned how bad things were, which is an interesting, you know, as I say, little addendum to to that big story from last year. Yeah, I haven't uh, read the article myself, but Tom Merritt was talking about on DTNS. And one of the things the contractor described was that, Logins for um, login username and passwords for the contractors themselves were shared around in plain text so as to make it easier to log in. Yeah, <laughs> it was just like they weren't even trying. Exactly, this contractor was it? exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, now they're they're bringing it back out of China, from what I understand, but they didn't ever say they were bringing it in house. No, so the Apple are the, uh, I don't believe anyone else has been quite as, in typical Apple way, when they correct, they correct all, the, you know, they, they correct bigly. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure anyone else is correcting quite as much, but nonetheless, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so, 
Next up, we have um, so uh, an ongoing trend we have been noticing is that attackers, like attacks, keep on changing with like fashion and clothes. Right, there was a time when third-party apps like PDF viewers were all the rage to go after, but that you know that's sort of been tidied up now, so that's not the low-hanging fruit anymore. And then in 2019, there was a big focus on you know exploiting bits of the browser that aren't the browser itself, which is basically plugins. And that really has been a trend in the last while, and that trend is continuing, and the browser manufacturers are responding to that trend by trying to fix it, basically. And there's been a big development in that regard from Mozilla. In It happened last month. Um, to stop, one of the things that was happening was legitimate plugins were being hijacked by bad guys, but basically somehow stealing their password and then using that to publish a malicious version of a genuine plugin. I mean, that's a really good way to infect lots of people with your malware, right? Because this developer has earned the actual trust of people legitimately, and then you just hijack that completely to send them some malware. So now, if you're a developer, you must use two-factor authentication to publish anything into the official Firefox plugin store. Oh, wow. That's good. That's extremely good for our protection. And while we're on Mozilla continuing to improve things, when we talked about DNS over HTTPS or DOH, uh, we mentioned that by default, Mozilla only had one provider. So there was a text box where you could type in any DNS server you wanted, but the radio button was basically use uh, Cloudflare or type in your own. Well, now there's a third option. You can also use Next DNS now, and one assumes over time more providers will get added in as DOH becomes more of a thing. So it's it's nice oh, to see okay. that continuing. Interesting. Yeah. Um, since we're on the subject of Mozilla, and I'm not sure it fits in here, but I didn't see it in your show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we're not going to talk a lot about running updates, but Firefox has a, a zero-day exploit going on right now. It does and indeed, and that is in the show notes under Action Alerts. With a giant oh, big okay. I looked for Mozilla and didn't find it, so it must Firefox. be under Firefox. Yeah. Okay. All right. Shh. You didn't hear it from me. Either way, update your browser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just opened it and did it. Okay. So, um, Elcomsoft are the next people to. They're they're sort of. I call them grey hat. They will call themselves white hat. I'm sure. But anyway, they're a company who sell forensics tools or hacking tools to supposedly legitimate governments. Though many of us could have disagreements on the legitimacy of some of the governments involved. Again, on that sliding scale of uh, authoritarian versus not. Anyway, the checkmate vulnerability that allow, that we talked about a lot at the end of last year has had an effect on Elcomsoft's products. They have been able to add extra features into their forensics tools. I think the easiest thing to do is just to quote from Elcomsoft's own stuff. So, almost everything inside the iPhone remains encrypted until the user unlocks it with their passcode after the phone starts up. It's the almost part of the everything that we target in this update. We've discovered that certain bits and pieces are available in iOS devices even before it's for the first unlock. In particular, some keychain items containing authentication credentials for email accounts and a number of authentication tokens are available before first unlock. This is by design. These bits and pieces are needed to allow the iPhone to start up correctly before the user punches in the passcode. So these things can't be encrypted as the phone is booting or it can't boot. And normally you're protected by the secure boot feature. But the checkmate vulnerability gets around secure boot. So now Elcomsoft's tool can pick up these unencrypted pieces by hacking the firmware of the iPhone. So that's how the two things connect together. 
So this is a bad thing. It is the inevitable end result of the checkmate vulnerability. Yes, it allows security researchers to hack their phones and it allows Alcomsoft to hack other people's phones. Okay, but the, maybe I missed it in your description, but is that vulnerability patched in more recent OSs? No, no, this is the hardware vulnerability that's completely unpatchable. Oh, checkmate. Right, right, right. Okay, so this is, you can't do a darn thing about it and sad face. Correct. So forensics can get this information out of all iPhones that are older than the iPhone. Is it the ten? Where, where we get the new chip? I think it's the uh, the details are in the link stories anyway. But basically, okay. it's from a certain A chip onward. I think it's the A twelve and up is fine, but the A eleven and earlier is vulnerable. Okay. Mm. So you can get a new iPhone if you're looking for an excuse. <laughs> there is a way. Uh, something else we got feedback on actually was my, I, I, I'm very much on the side that YouTube definitely should treat videos aimed at kids as if they are, uh, don't monetize the kids basically. Uh, and that is now what they are doing because they really have no choice because they have been found that they have to comply with COPA, which is a law that they back quite some time in the US. Uh, but obviously this does have some side effects, which is that people hosting videos that come under this classification are now getting less ad revenue because you're not allowed to exploit the kids. I find myself finding it really hard not to be on the government side on this, but there is another point of view. So I'll tell you one interesting thing about that is we had interpreted the kid thing as meaning it's it's family friendly, and that's not what it means. It means this is targeted towards children. That's okay. I... I hadn't made that interpretation. I had always interpreted it as targeted at kids. And the the okay. rules for targeted at kids are things like, you know, contains celebrities, kid celebrities. I mean, there's a, there's a list of tests for whether or not something's targeted at kids, but I had interpreted it as We must have read very carefully uh, because the, the choices we made, we did have it under the kid thing. And it was like, yeah, it's family friendly. We go out of our way to make sure, you know. Oh, so you had proactively tagged your stuff yeah yeah oops <laughs> well yeah i mean we know now <laughs> yeah. yeah that has a different meaning to what you might think it doesn't mean yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean because everything on youtube is technically uh kid family safe isn't it well no it's 13 and up probably most of them uh, are anyway yeah. anyway anyway yeah so anyway that is that has moved forward uh, Project Zero is something that regularly crosses our radar. It's it's Google's um, mechanism for dealing with zero-day bugs, and they have changed their rules. So we've had repeated conversations about their very strict 90-day policy, and that remains in place. But there's an inverse of that, right? So imagine you're a vendor, and you get told you have 90 days to fix the problem. Up until now, if you fixed it in 10, Google would immediately publish all the details. So you fix the patch, Google immediately publish. Google are not going to do that anymore because that way you get the opportunity not just to rush out a fix, but to do a really good fix. So whether you rush out a fix in 10 days or whether you do a good fix in 20 days, Google are going to keep their mouth shut for 90 days. Oh, okay. So the idea you think being, that's good? Oh, it is definitely good. Don't hurry people into making bad patches. Let them make right. good patches. Yeah, and you then, make a bad patch, you might open up another vulnerability. Right. Well, then you end up in this cycle like iOS 13 where it's patches of patches of patches of patches. Oh, we rushed this patch out and now we broke that thing over there. No, no. So 
shifting the focus to make sure that it's not just encouraging patches, but encouraging good patches. I yeah, I'll, I'll get behind Google on that one. Thanks. Okay, good. Uh, another story that's been rumbling on for ages is Russia's move towards basically uh, the ability to internalize the internet. So to have a Russia-only intranet on demand as and when they want to, basically a giant big switch to disconnect Russia from the internet. Well, that's come a step closer because they ran tests on the network equipment needed to actually do that, and it appears to have worked. Needless to say, Mm. details are sparse. But over the Christmas period, there were live tests of the Russia-only internet, or the Rusnet, I believe, is the nickname given to it. But apparently Rusnet works. It just hasn't been deployed for real. Mm. It's a very mm. interesting development. It makes uh, the Great Firewall of China look quaint. It's, this, this is quite an interesting... Well, anyway, it's... Yeah, we shall see if it ever gets deployed for reals. But they have they have brought it closer. Wow. Oh, all of you Equifax people who wanted your $125, I'm afraid a court has ruled that you're not going to get much of that because $80 million is going to the attorneys. Yay. <laughs> and finally, to end on some good news, California's CCPA, the Consumer Privacy... I thought no. it was Protection Act? The last A has to be Act, and the P must be Privacy. <laughs> Darn. Anyway. <laughs> California's big new privacy law came into effect at the start of the year. Uh, If you're interested in a relatively short 20-minute podcast or covering what it's about, I would recommend Reset. Um, It's a good podcast in general, actually. Uh, It's from Vox Media. Um, But they did an episode dedicated to CPAA. I I, I figured out why we can't do the acronym. Yeah, you misspelled it. It's CC... Wait a minute, where'd it go? CCPA, so it's California Consumer Privacy Act. Okay, that makes way more sense. The second A was throwing me off because it shouldn't be there. It should be two Cs. There we go. (laughs) All right, fixed in the show notes. Thank you. Um, So if you want to have a quick listen to catch up on it, and the great thing, because because California is such a major economy, in the same way that Californian emissions laws affect the whole country, California privacy laws pretty much affect the whole world, frankly. Just like everyone got to get some benefit from the GDPR, a lot of people are going to get benefits from the CCPA. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's not just that 12% of the United States lives in California. It's that the, all the big tech companies are here too, right? Not all of them, but a, a great number of them are the here. So if they all have to comply with it, that affects everybody, right? Exactly, exactly. And it's also, it's very difficult to have like one Facebook for Californians and another Facebook for other people. So the easiest thing to do is just to give everyone the new rights. It's just easier. Yeah, so I hope that helps everybody. Yeah, it You're should welcome. do. should do, a nice umbrella. <laughs> I, and I thank you for GDPR, so good. Yes, exactly. Now, Deep Dive, the new name for Security Medium. We have one Deep Dive, Plunder Vault. (laughs) Wonderful name. Uh, So December saw the release of one bug with fancy name, Plunder Vault. Um, And this vulnerability uses the fact that if you very subtly reduce the voltage on on an Intel CPU, on certain specific Intel CPUs, the CPU can start to make predictable mistakes when multiplying numbers together. In theory, a CPU should be, like anything else digital, either working or not working. It doesn't half work, right? It's not like an analog thing where you can have no signal, bad signal, 
good signal. Like, digital is supposed to be it's there or it's not. But it turns out that there is a small range of voltages where some Intel CPUs forget how to multiply but haven't realized they're undervolted and continue to carry on regardless. And you can use that trick to make them access the wrong piece of memory. So the multiplication they're doing should not cause a memory access violation. Uh, But because you've made them predictably do their math wrong by tweaking the voltage, they predictably jump outside of the memory range they're supposed to go to and into a different memory address where you, the attacker, have just put a bunch of code. Or more interesting... So this is one of those ones where it's horrible, but wow, that's clever. Darn straight. So (laughs) where they took this... So the security researchers first discovered that undervolting is a thing and that not only will the CPU make errors, it will make the same error time and time again. It makes a predictable error. Oh, okay, so it's the predictable one. Yeah, wow. So, and the, 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 the link in the show notes is to the Naked Security article, which is the only article I've read that didn't make my head explode. It actually explained it really <laughs> well. And so once they figured out that they could reliably make the computer multiply wrong, then they started to figure out, well, what can we do with that? And where they landed on is something called SGX, or the Security Guard Extensions, which are basically Intel's equivalent of Apple's Secure Enclave. So you should not be able to read memory inside the Secure Enclave. Mm -hmm. But if you can predictably mismultiply, the CPU checks to see if you're doing something illegal. Oh, no, you're not. That's perfectly fine. The multiplication goes wrong and you read the cryptographic key right out of that secure enclave. Uh, dumb question. How do you reduce a CPU's voltage? You're sitting there with a phone in your hand or a computer. How do you ah, reduce it? Turns CPU's out, voltage? you know the way these Intel chips are not reduced instruction set? There are um for the, there are um assembly language commands for tweaking the voltage by plus or minus one volt in increments of your choosing. So they exist. But how do you? How do you? You write I code. A, I got an iPhone in my hand. You, you right, write malware. Code? It's malware. So this would be exploited by malware, just like a Stack Overflow is exploited by malware, right? You, the attacker, huh. get to run arbitrary code. That code can reduce the voltage. Okay. Hmm. Right. right. All all malware is software, right? Otherwise, that's what. Right. I'm just trying to picture where the software is at that point, but yeah. So the attacker has, through any one of the million and one mechanisms we've talked about before, a Trojan, a buffer overflow error, any vulnerability you care to shake a stick at, the the bad guy has achieved their aim of running malicious code. That malicious code uses these instructions that exist on Intel CPUs to lower the voltage in a predictable way, and they end up reading the memory right out of your secure enclave. Neat. So are we doomed? No. Intel have fixed a very a very simple patch for this. They have removed the instructions for tweaking the voltage. There's oh. no actual need for this, right? This is one of the things, oh, wouldn't it be cool if? No, it wouldn't. Don't make computers do more than they need to. It's only, it's only going to do bad things. Like, this is like the APIs in browsers for a while to let you read the, the battery level down to fractions of a percent. They were used to track people. Now they're gone from our browsers. These instructions for slewing the voltage, why on earth would software need to slew the voltage of the CPU? That should be the CPU should be handling itself, not software. There's no legitimate need for those instructions. So Intel just took them out. Problem Good. solved. 
So right. and that so that's a firmware update, maybe? It is a firmware update, a BIOS patch, in fact, to be really specific. Okay. Now the really good news here for Nasilla Castaways is that most computers do not have SGX. It's a it's very much a high-end feature. So the kind of laptops that you pay extra for to have for businesses. And even laptops and stuff that have SGX, it's often the CPU is capable, but it's actually turned off in the BIOS by default. And so the reality are, if you're a home user, it is almost certain you do not use SGX, in which case this never affected you anyway. If you're a corporate user, well, then corporate IT would have been the people to turn on SGX and corporate IT are the ones who need to fix it for you. So it's corporate IT's problem, not yours. Okay, good. So, so this, we care. And I'm gonna I'm gonna test your theory of what you're telling us. We care because it's really clever and interesting. We care because but, it it uh, somehow when I reorganized the show notes, the fire extinguisher icon went away. This made the news. It had a fancy name. Everyone was talking about it. This is yet another example of Intel bugs. Don't worry. Okay. About it. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. That's now, really interesting, though. I like knowing nerdy stuff at that level. I thought you'd appreciate it, yeah. So I figured we'd do a screwy medium on it. So, action alert. Zero day Firefox patch now. It is being actively exploited in the wild. Patch, 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 patch. Similarly, but not quite as catastrophic, WhatsApp has been patched to fix a bug that would allow attackers to permanently delete group chats and make your app crash. Not as bad as zero days in your browser, but still not good. So update your WhatsApp okay. while you're at it. Uh, and then the last action are noteworthy breaches. If you think you are affected by one of these breaches, then I would suggest you read further. So Facebook lost information on another quarter of a billion users or 267 million of them. Twitter managed to have a bug in one of their apps which allowed attackers to connect phone numbers to accounts. Uh? should not be possible, but that 17 million of them are now linkable. The company that you like a lot, Wise, had a bit of an issue. Um, They lost enough information to do a phishing attack against you, and they also did a forced password reset for everyone. But basically, they, through human errors, how they describe it themselves, they accidentally leaked their database for most of December. A copy of the database, as I recall. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for the better part of December. They were doing some development work and they took a copy of live data. So it's the same information, it's just in a different place. And the real, the normal place it should be is properly secured, but the test environment wasn't. It's it's a very common whoopsie, actually, because you're well, thinking, "Well, I'm doing development." How, work. What was your reaction to how they handled this? My reaction was, "Doesn't get any better than this." Like literally, less than twenty four hours later, they were completely candid about it. They didn't like faff about with PR speak. No, no, no. One of our employees made a mistake. This is what it means. This is what happened. This is what we leaked. They were extremely upfront about it. And that engenders confidence to me, right? That that was part of, that was uh, my impression, but I'm certainly extremely biased on this topic because I love the company. The Mm. other thing they did was immediately, so a a third party company came out and said this, this leak had happened. And the article was really inflammatory and obnoxious. I mean, it was not 
it was not polite reporting. It was they they mm. basically implied that the government should should shut them down and cra- yeah, it was terrible. And their reaction to that was, we have not been able to verify anything in this article, but as a precaution, this is what we've already done. And then within 24 hours, they were able to verify that much of what it had said was right, not all of it. And they didn't say these guys are jerks. They said, this is what was true. This is what was not true. And here's what we've done. And so the fact that they took it so seriously when they had no proof it was true, my first instinct would have been going, uh-uh, didn't, didn't happen. Tot- oh, shoot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a very, very dangerous first impression. I really like, actually, is that they took the information and acted on the information, but they didn't take the bait to get into an emotional back and forth. Yes, exactly, exactly. I could not have been so dispassionate. I would have been, you know, fighting with them and wasting energy instead of spending my energy finding the problem. So I thought it was good. The only thing I don't like is that they have, they set up two-factor authentication to SMS. Okay. And as we know, that's not a secure way to do it. But there's another problem. I have an account with Wise and Steve shares that account in order to be able to control our cameras. Uh, if it's two-factor authentication to my phone and I'm not there, then he can't do, do what he needs to do. So we never annoying. turn it on when that's the case. There's nothing we can do. So I've been in their forums and saying, hey, come on, guys. Come on. Come on. OTP. 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 Yeah. Is it really hard to implement that? No. No, no, no. It's really, really easy. Really easy. Okay. Well, then I won't give them any slack for not doing it. I'll keep no, on their the, case. The, 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 particularly the Google stuff is open sourced, few lines of code. I have done it. It's trivial. Okay. Trivial. It's as easy as putting up a capture. Hmm. And they seem to be people who are willing to do that, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Similar-ish, Google have suspended Xiaomi from their home hub because of a camera privacy problem where basically people were seeing other people's camera footage if they had Xiaomi cameras. Until Xiaomi sorted out, Google are suspending them from the home hub. That's probably so, a good idea. <laughs> so the, the home hub is is like their, their smart uh, speaker thing you can do connections to like you can with Alexa and Xiaomi was one of the people who was allowed to use it. That's so, my understanding. Okay. Um, I don't have any of these things, so... Okay. If, if any of those words Google mean home. something to you, the link is in the show notes <laughs> to the Naked Security article. Okay. Sounds good. So, the next new section, Worthy Warnings. No. Brian Krebs brought up something which I hadn't tweaked how important the point this is. It's a subtlety, but goodness me, is it important. So we're used to thinking of phishing, right? You trick someone into going into the wrong login page, you get their username and password, wahahaha, you have some fun with it. The user discovers they've been hacked, they change their password, that's the end of the fun and games, right? Yeah. Not if the phishing attack tricks you into granting an app permission using OAuth 2. So OAuth 2 is a protocol behind login with Facebook, login with Twitter, login with Google, or indeed Office 365 logins. They're all OAuth too. So they're the kind of things where you go to a page, you enter your stuff, and then it says, this app would like permission to do blah, blah, blah. Do you agree? And you go, yes. Well, at that stage, there is a per app token has been created. That's not using your password. So you've been fished into giving that app permissions, and you can change your password 5 million times, and that app still has the permissions. Hmm. So if you get fished on your Office 365, your Gmail, your Facebook, or your Twitter, 
be sure to also revoke app permissions. Have a look through the list of apps that have permission and revoke everything that you're not using. Oh, jeez. How do you, I mean, one of the reasons for using something like OAuth 2 is to keep from having to remember where you've used it. No, it's not to keep from, no, no, it's not to keep from remembering where you've used it. It's to keep from having to trust anyone but you with your password. The problem to be solved is that you used to have to give your password to these third parties so they could use your account, and now you do not. Now it's the opposite. You choose what access they have by having the list of every app that has a token, and you can revoke it from the issuing end. So this is working as it should. But the thing is, we don't think about it. The reason it's effective for phishing attacks is that we don't think to go look at all of the app permissions we've granted. We just think, oh, I was phished. I need to change my password. But for these modern services where you're effectively, these are identity providers, you also need to go and revoke permissions that you shouldn't have provided. Oh, wow. It hadn't occurred to me. I would have been one of the idiots, you know? So I thought it was well worth mentioning. You then sent me a worthy warning. Um, The US government have a program to help people in financial constraint afford basically modern life by helping them get a smartphone. Because how do you apply for jobs if you can't get online, right? You end up trapped in poverty if you cannot get on a smartphone. And so there's a government-funded program, apparently by some people it's called Obama Phone. Apparently, I haven't heard it used that way, but the article says it's, <laughs> it's like Obamacare, Obama Phone. Yeah, this all sounds great, and they give out cheap Android phones, fine, but they come with pre-installed unremovable malware. That's not fine. Mm. So, if you have one of these phones, I guess you can root it. I mean, all you can do really. Yeah. Oh, there's a detail in that, too. Uh, I heard Tom Merritt talk about this also on uh, Daily Tech News Show. Um, you can remove it, but if you remove it, it removes the settings app. Oh, well, why would you need to change your settings? <sighs> oh, dear. Um, another obvious worthy warning. The U.S. government is warning of an increased threat from Iranian cyber activity. No idea why they might be cranky. I don't know. Can't. Can't think of it. Um, definitely related news. Texas has seen a surge in Iranian cyber attacks. So it is real. It is happening. And uh, people in the US have been getting fake military draft SMS messages. There is no military draft to go invade Iran. That is not happening. So <laughs> any such text messages are fake. Do not follow the instructions. They are not in your benefit. Yeah. Notable news. Deja vu all over again, anyone? Um, The FBI have sent a letter to Apple asking for help cracking two iPhones belonging to the shooter who killed three at a naval base in Florida in December 2019. The letter makes clear that the FBI have exhausted all avenues other than Apple's help. I'm just going to make an editorial note here. I am refusing on a point of principle to name the murderer in question because they wanted to be infamous and I'm not playing into their ball. Into their, I'm not Absolutely. playing into their court. So at the moment, this is a letter saying, please help. This is probably step one of a, an at least two-step process. Step one, send letter. Step two, send court case. So... As of now, we're at step one, and there may or may not be a step two, but it's definitely worth paying attention to. Um, Apple's response 
has been through a speech that their privacy lead, privacy director gave at a conference recently, where they basically said backdoors do not help solve crime. Bruce Schneier and Schneier on Security has an excellent opinion piece. And John Gruber kind of has a very cutting opinion piece. He doesn't beat about the bush, but you know something? He's right, in my opinion. So I link to that as well. So if you want to sort of get read in on this story as it's developing, there are three links in the show notes I would recommend. Okie dokie. Apple have been busy in recent times improving their security. Uh, Particularly noteworthy for Nocilla Castaways is that Apple have published an updated platform security guide. It's really well written and explains in human-friendly terms the security that Apple have in place on all of their platforms. How it works, what it's for, what it doesn't doesn't protect, and it's oh, neat. yeah, it it must have taken an awful awful lot of effort to write something so complex in such a friendly and approachable form. So ten out of ten to Apple on that one. Uh, there's a link to the story and a link to the guide itself in the show notes. Meanwhile, Apple have also expanded their bug bounty program. So it used to only cover iOS, well, now it covers all their OSs. And they have also, while they're at it, bumped the maximum payout. If you've managed to find a juicy enough bug, you can get a million dollars for it, which is pretty wow. darn decent. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then two other related stories. Um, one of the other things that came out in a at the recent security conference was that Apple are using technology to proactively... We, we sort of we knew this, but they talked about it in more detail. So Apple are proactively scanning iCloud photo uploads to check for child abuse imagery. Hmm. Um, it's kind of interesting. So they used to... Initially, the last time I, I read about this was some time ago. One of the things the US government does is they put out a list of hashes of known child abuse images. And all of the cloud providers of any note check for these hashes. But those hashes will only find, like, the exact image, not resized, not in any way altered. And, I mean, that's that's good to do, but it's not going to catch most child abuse images. It's only going to catch a subset of well-known images. Can I interrupt for a second? You can. Why? I'm kind of confused. There is a database of, of known images Database of hashes of known images from the FBI. No, no, but I mean, right. But that means there's a, a a set of known images. Yes. So if you if you are caught with five gigabytes of child abuse imagery on your laptop, those images, the hashes are taken of those, and the hashes are widely distributed among service providers. Wow. That's, that's been going on for years. That, yeah, it's it's but clever. Think how right? crazy that is, right? Oh that's, yeah. Oh, that's why. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. So okay. all the cloud providers use those hashes because it's easy to do and it doesn't involve it doesn't involve distributing the images, you just distribute the hash. Right, right. But Apple are taking it further. They're actually employing uh, machine learning to detect suspected images and they make it very clear that they never assume anything based on the technology alone. Every single potential match is checked by a human before any action is taken. But if they find child abuse imagery, they will cancel your account and report you to the cops. Which Good. doesn't seem unreasonable. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and then finally, for any Mac users out there who has not yet been shaken out of smugness, which was never appropriate anyway, 
just so you know, North Korea have upgraded their Apple Jesus malware to target Mac users to steal your Bitcoin. Now, it's spreading as a Trojan, so you're not going to catch this unless you're being careless. But again, if you're a smug person, you might be careless. Don't be. Yeah. Wow. What I think is definitely good news is that Apple have joined a consortium of other tech companies to create something called the Connected Home Over IP Project, or CHIP. The idea is to develop a single, secure standard that IoT devices can use to interact with all of the smart assistants. So one protocol to get you everything you need. So to get you... um, you know, your Siri, your A-Lady, your Google Home, all of it, one protocol. So a hardware vendor just has to do implement one protocol properly and they're away. So I really hope this works out. And Apple... Yeah. I've heard a lot of people talking about this and, it, and it's kind of interesting to think about like Amazon pretty much owns this market with Google uh, close on their heels and Apple's like, hey, don't forget, we're still here. Um, but if... If they, it would seem that Apple has every motivation to play in this this committee, but Amazon and Google, it's interesting that they are. I, I'm wondering whether part of this is a um, a prediction and a concern about the government coming after them and trying to break them up for all these different things that are going on. That it, you know, you better be smart about this stuff right now for us. I don't know. I'm sure, like, the idea that there could be a secure standard that could help them with oversight, for sure. But I actually think that it's in everyone's interest to make it easier for device manufacturers to manufacture secure devices. Because Alexa's reputation suffers when there's shoddy hardware sold that has Alexa support. And that's not Mm -hmm. controllable by Amazon, because they don't make the hardware, they just make the Alexa. And so having it making it easy for people to make secure Alexa devices is actually in Amazon's interest. So this is this is specifically hardware, not software? Right, so this is for people who make devices. Connected it's home it's nothing over to do IP. with the software, it's, it's the hardware. But what I'm wondering is whether, had this existed, then would Xiaomi maybe have not been stupid about their, their cameras that were used with Google Home? Probably, right. yes, exactly. So... The hardware has to talk, there has to be an interface between the hardware and the smart assistant, right? There has to be a bridge from the hardware to the smart assistant. That bridge... Which is done in software, right? Which is software, it's, you know, it's it's firmware, it's a mix of firmware, software, (laughs) right? It's... Okay, but you don't mean a physical puck that you can pick up with your hand when you say bridge. That's what I'm trying to... I was trying Separate. to use loose words because you were trying to paint me into a corner. It, 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 Walkway, uh, yeah. Connectivity, right? some way to connect the two. You, yeah, exactly. You buy a camera or a smart plug or a smart door lock. There has to be a way for that thing you bought to talk to the entirely software-based assistant you are using. Right, right. So that means that the protocol has to has to go from hardware to software. So it spans both. Okay. And is that, really is that sort of what HomeKit was supposed to do? No, no, no. So HomeKit is still going to do its thing. And Alexa is still going to do its thing. But you have to get, right? So in order to be a HomeKit device, basically, well, if you, you do this chip thing, your device will be a HomeKit device and an Alexa device and 
So you get to be well, the mole. HomeKit still continues to exist because HomeKit is also has the other side of it, which is all of the apps and stuff talk to it. So, yeah, but that's that's not what I meant at all. What what I was trying to refer to was Apple used to have a requirement that you had to have a certain hardware chip in order to be HomeKit compatible. So that sounds like that's what this this consortium, this alliance, is trying to do. Uh, is is come up with a hardware way of doing it. And it's what has specifically slowed Apple down and Amazon and Google have got run away with the market because of it. Okay, no, 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 definitely not. I'm mixed up? Okay. You are mixed up because the hardware requirement was removed a few years ago. Now you can do the encryption in software. What matters is you do the encryption and there's no, this does not require right. chips. Right, but you're saying this new thing that they're working on together, these companies and groups mm-hmm. working together, Apple's on, Apple, Amazon, Google, and Zigbee are working together to come up with a hardware solution. No, 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 <laughs> okay. no, it's a protocol, right? It's, it's a way of okay. the firmware talking. Okay. Let's call it software. Okay. There we go. Now I'm happy. <laughs> it's not strictly true, but I'm saying let's call it. Close so please enough. don't send me mail. Sure. <laughs> okay. It stops Allison's question. So good. Effectively software, right? Is, is firmware software? Uh, That's far too existential both. a question. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> uh, Microsoft have an interesting thing called Project Artemis, which is a tool that monitors metadata to look for the kind of behavior used by online predators. And if you think about oh, it, wow. there is a pattern of behavior of people who are seeking out and interacting with kids. And so maybe you could detect that pattern. And that's what Microsoft are doing with Project Artemis. So again, very interesting use of machine learning, quite similar to Apple using it to detect child abuse images. But in this case, Microsoft are using it to detect behavior that looks like an online predator. That again, sounds quite good to me. And ProtonMail, the people behind the well-known, very well-secured mail service are branching out. Proton Calendar has entered beta. Oh. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, then I have a whole section here called Notable Social Media News, right? The story that just keeps on going is that people are trying to abuse social media and the social media companies are trying to protect themselves. And so this is uh, just, this just keeps happening. So the first thing is Twitter have banned animated PNGs because some people, that's the kindest thing I can say, decided it would be fun to seek out known epileptics, like, say, the Epilepsy Foundation, and Mm. send them animated images that will trigger epileptic attacks, because these people apparently have nothing better to do than to risk people's lives. Oh, jeez. Isn't it disgraceful? So because there are such gum beans on the planet, Twitter have now had to ban animated PNGs. Grr. Wow. Uh, Google Voice Assistants have gotten really cool new privacy undo commands. So the biggest one of these is a way to say to Google Voice, whatever it wrongfully activates, I wasn't talking to you. And it will immediately scrub and forget. Oh. I want Siri to steal this feature <laughs> now. Now you do remember what my my require or my suggestion is that all of the companies listen to what we said right after we said something and right after you responded. And if it's like you're a moron, then perhaps look at the two things that we what we said and what you said and go compare those. I give you my permission to go look at that because that's where I'm mad at you. 
Well, see, if it's the case of an answer, it's slightly different. So this is the case of where it just wakes up and goes, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. It's like, I wasn't talking oh, to you. Right, right. So immediately yeah, scrub that recording. It. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that is good. That's interesting. Because yeah, I usually use some slightly more choice words, which Siri then <laughs> well, gets yeah, offended Yeah, I said at. go through the list of profanity, too. <laughs> anyway, so that, that's a really cool feature. Um, and also stuff like uh, forget my location for the last week and stuff like that. So basically... A voice way of interacting with the privacy features Google already have. And so to have that there through voice instead of having to log into the privacy portal and go click the buttons, just say it. That's a really nice addition that Google are adding. So I like that. Uh, Facebook have banned deep fakes, but not so-called cheap fakes or shallow fakes. So deep fake, definitely not allowed, but like videos that are still every bit as misleading, like the infamous one of uh, House Leader Nancy Pelosi slowed down to sound drunk, that's still perfectly fine because it's not a deep fake. I believe that comes under the cheap fake uh, moniker. So again, with Facebook and their half-hearted missing the point. Like The problem is being misleading. I don't really care how you're misleading. The problem is spreading misinformation, not specific pigeonholed types of misinformation. Right. And that just means they have defined the sip, the slippery slope with, with specific guidelines. I mean, they're going to have to decide what's a cheap fake. Well, I could tell, well, I couldn't. Was that a deep fake or a cheap fake? Right. Yeah. The slippery slope is at exactly 5.4 degrees. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Related. Uh, Following the lead from parent company Facebook, Instagram has rolled out new features to combat fake news and hate speech, but with the same exception for politicians. No one else can say these things apart from politicians. So that now applies to all the things they have done. This might be the thing that angers me the most. Yeah. I mean, that that just helps to cement the everybody lies thought, right? Yeah, because you literally have a license to lie. You're a politician. The people who should be the most honest. And the people for whom we we need the most from are the people who get to do whatever they want. Why? That's not fair. Anyway. Yeah. Um, We talked last time we spoke about an interesting article where basically Facebook had been asked questions from the US Senate and they replied to say that, yeah, even if you turn off location services, we won't use your GPS, but we'll still determine your location based on like your IP address and other stuff we can manage to figure out. And the senators wrote back as like, did we read that right? Did you actually tell us that you ignore user settings and track them anyway? And Facebook were going, yep, that's what we meant. That's what we do. The senators are not happy. So I imagine this is going to roll on for a bit. But just in case you didn't realize it, Google or Facebook are completely honest about the fact that if you say do not, you know, you deny location services, they'll track you any which way they can anyway. Because... That's what they're like. Wow. Well, um, I guess I'm really happy that our government is doing that. It, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 there are senators who really know their tech, and the letters are good. Uh, so I'm happy to see this being followed up on. <laughs> uh, more leaks have come out about Cambridge Analytica. It does not paint Facebook in a good light. Meanwhile, the Brazilians have signed Facebook $1.6 million, which for most companies would be a big deal, but for Facebook, they found it behind the couch two seconds ago. 
Facebook have said that they really, 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 really do mean it this time when they are actually going to stop using the two-factor authentication phone numbers to uh, mine your contact information. I, I've, we've had this story before. Apparently they've stopped before, but this time apparently they really have. Apparently. Twitter, meanwhile, have been proactive and they have removed nearly 6,000 basically what they call state-backed information operations. In other words, government-run disinformation campaigns. And Facebook have purged 188 groups and ebook have banned 144 shill accounts in an attempt to fight fake reviews. So that's positive. Meanwhile, in the UK, both Google and Facebook are coming up for scrutiny by uh, UK government committees. And in the US... uh, Google handed over an unprecedented haul of data through geofence warrants. That is not a positive development. Now we move on to happy things to finish out. Top tips. Eight Mac security and privacy features to set up right away from Intego.com. Uh, particularly good if you got some new shinies over the holidays. Ah. How to remotely help someone fix their iPhone, iPad and Mac using messages screen sharing. Again, useful tip this time for Wait, wait. Oh, okay. So I wonder, do they go through and have you connect, have the other person connect the iPhone and launch uh, QuickTime and use it as a camera so that you can see on the desktop? Yes. Wow. Most people you have to help with their iPhone aren't going to be able to do that, but that is an interesting way to do it. It is. And if you have the instructions and the screenshots in front of you, the chances of you talking them through it are way higher. Right, right. So I have that one bookmarked. I hope not to need it, but I have it bookmarked. Yeah. Uh, another interesting one from Intego, how to remove GPS location data from photos on iPhone or Mac. That's you may neat. want to strip that out before you share. Yeah. I have noticed um, some of the apps I'm using have settings to say, do you want to always strip the photos or the uh, metadata? So that's cool. Yeah. And most reputable social media, including Facebook, even if that is oxymoronic, <laughs> do remove GPS location data, at least when they make it visible to others, whether or not they remove it before they themselves store it, I cannot comment. Mm, I wonder if they've changed that, because I remember years ago, at least, I would post a picture and it would say, hey, do you want to tag you at the Mirage in Las Vegas? Yeah. Oh, like Twitter used to not strip it either, and it was a major, major privacy fail. So I know they strip it before it shows up in other people's feed. But what I don't know is if they strip it before they store the metadata for themselves. Okay. Uh, Now, the next one we have is excellent explainers. So these are articles that just do a really good job of explaining something our listeners might find interesting. So the guys at Naked Security got the year off to a lovely start with seven types of virus, a short glossary of contemporary cyber badness. So again, you know, what does it mean to be a keylogger? What does it mean to be... Hmm. Uh, ransomware. What do these things mean? We hear these words. What do they mean? Well, Naked Security have your back on that one. It's actually a really nice article. Interesting. Uh, iMore have a nice article, iCloud Photo Library and Security. What you need to know. If you're a photo library user, you may find it interesting. Uh, And then Privacy International have an interesting article. This one is more interesting rather than happy happy joy joy but basically there's a new technique being employed by governments um, and law enforcement agencies called cloud extraction so as our phones become more and more encrypted 
the alternative place to get the information is from the cloud those phones you're talking to. Uh, so it's kind of, they, they go to an interesting look at what is and isn't in those cloud services that we use. It's it's interesting. So that is linked for those of you who wish to read about it. Next new section, I've tried to make them all alliterative, is interesting insights. Basically, good opinion pieces. Or notable, anyway. Um, the New York Times did a massive story where they took a giant big data set of, fo- of anonymized phone locations and proved what we've sort of been saying all along, which is that anonymized information is nowhere near as anonymous as you think. You can usually reconstruct it very quickly. So the title of the article is 12 million, mo- 12 million phones, one data set, zero privacy. Some highlights picked out by the Mac Observer, uh, the headline kind of says it all, NYT reporters used a leaked location database to track the president of oh, the United nice. States. Right? Nice. So it's anonymous data, but it's pretty obvious pretty quickly which of those anonymous random numbers maps to the president or one of his very, very, very close aides, because strangely enough, wow. he tends to be on the news. And so if you have a device <laughs> moving between Mar-a-Lago and number whatever Pennsylvania Avenue pretty obvious when you have his entourage at the very east yeah wow uh, if you just want a good summary you don't want to read the massive new york times article naked security do a great job of summarizing it um, and also putting some context and analysis around it so hmm. th- that's linked in the show notes and then finally john gruber has some very cutting critique but i think he's right and um, his headline critique is of the-, the new york times article yeah the okay. New York Times is hypocrisy on ad tracking and privacy because as you are reading the article about <laughs> the data set gathered by cookies and so forth, they are tracking you and doing exactly what it is they're complaining about right as you read about them complain about it. So so they're like all self-righteous about it? They're all self-righteous about it and literally you're be- uh, it is being done to you by them at the moment you're reading their self-righteousness. That, that's worth pointing out. And John does it cuttingly. Um, another interesting article from Freedom to Tinker is the privacy implications of the U1 chip, or to be to be honest, it's not just about Apple's U1 chip, it's about ultra-wideband in general, which is going to be making its way into lots of other phones over the coming year and beyond. So if you're curious what it really means, that's an interesting article. And one on Medium. I was Google's head of international relations. Here's why I left. Hmm. Short version... I tried to raise human rights issues. I was ignored. So I took the hint and sawed it off. Um, wow. And then finally, Security Now did an interesting end of year special. Episode 746, A Decade of Hacks. In the last 10 years, how has security changed? It was a very interesting retrospective. So I hope it's better. It. That wasn't really the question asked, right? What has been happening okay. rather than is it good or bad, right? So it's, okay. It's interesting to see the trend. Palette cleansers then. I recommend the entire short series of podcasts known as Cautionary Tales, right? I just recommend the entire series. It's called Cautionary Tales. There's eight episodes. It's really good, but it's one of those mini-series podcasts. But apparently there's a season two coming in a few months. Every episode is superb. But if you want to get stuck in, I recommend one called the rogue dressed as a captain because it 110% applies to security. Okay. And it's just really good. 
Another recommendation I have is for an entire podcast. It's called Hackable, and it's by McAfee, and I'm often wary of content provided by software vendors because they obviously have two motives, right? One is to be an advocate for their stuff, and the other is to whatever the content is. But it's not always a bad thing. Naked Security is one of the best security blogs, even though it's written by Sophos. And frankly, Indigo Intigo's Mac security blog is actually really good, even though it's written by a company selling Mac security software. And in this case, right. this is a podcast by McAfee, but it's really bloody good. So it's called Hackable, and the idea is really straightforward. It's first-hand accounts of the host being hacked. Oh, really? They let themselves... They intentionally get attacked. So you read news stories about how cameras can be used to spy on people. Fine. I have a laptop. It has a camera. Spy on me. And you get to go through it. How does it actually work in the real world? I have a rental car. Apparently you can clone the key. Okay, then. Get into my car. So it's all of those things we read about that are theoretically, hypothetically possible. Step by step, they do them. And it's, it's, it's pitched at ordinary human beings. It's not pitched at tech nerds. It doesn't go into deep geekery. What it gives you is the real world. Oh, so I'm just browsing along. Nothing really exciting happened. And then, you know, you, you cut across to the, to, to the bad guy's point of view. It's like, oh, why did your laptop screen just light up with my face in it? Oh, what do you mean you got my camera? But I just, you know, I just visited this webpage. It's it's really good. It's it's a really fun first hand, and you can easily see how you can fall for tricks because you see it happening. <laughs> Your definition of really fun is interesting. No, no, trust me. It, it sounds it, it's hard to describe, but it is a. It is not the kind of podcast that will leave you fretting. It's the kind of podcast that will leave you informed and feeling better. Okay. Honestly, it is a really positive feeling podcast. It's a genuinely fun listen. Okay, I'm going to try this one. Do genuine do. It's really fun. Uh, I'm really loving it. I I listen to every single back episode over Christmas. I listen to them all, all of them. They're superb. <laughs> See the the 2 hours a day Bart's on a bicycle. Yes, that does help. They're not long actually, which is also good. And finally, finally, one last podcast recommendation. Uh, actually, do you know why there's a lot of podcast recommendations for me? Because I spent a lot of extra time on the bike because I was off work and the weather was actually half decent. And all of my podcasts were on hiatus. Except so for mine. Except for yours. Thank you. So indeed, thank you. So I did a or lot running of... running reruns. Or running reruns. I hate that. So I did a lot of experimenting with recommendations. Um... And I have mentioned Darknet Diaries before. I love Darknet Diaries. It's great. Uh, but they did a really fun Christmas special. They called it Noirnet. It is a classic noir detective story, but it's basically an actual penetration test told as a classic noir. And when you're saying, what's a noir detective story? Think Dixon Hill in Star Trek TNG. <laughs> so that style, but an actual genuine penetration test. It's really fun. So wow. Darknet Diaries, episode 55, Noirnet. And that brings us to the end of a double-length show. All right. Well, now our challenge to you, Bart, is to see if you can do half as much work next time. Indeed. Right? And I would definitely appreciate constructive feedback on the new approach. Definitely. So 
you know, the best way is to go to our Podfeet Slack. I hang out there. It's cool. <laughs> and you can find that at podfeet.com slash Slack. Exactly. Anyway, I believe what I'm going to continue to say because it continues to be true and continues to be important. Until next time, stay patched so you stay secure. Now, you heard me say that I doubted that uh, that podcast Bart talked about hackable and talking about phishing would be fun, but he was right. It was really, really good. And I've gone back and started to listen to a couple other of the uh, of the episodes of Hackable from, McAfee, from McAfee. In fact, that's what gave me the idea that perhaps I got fished at uh, CES. Anyway, that is going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions. You can still do that. And comments and suggestions. And you can email me at allison at podfeed.com. Follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You want to become a patron of the Podfeet podcast? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. You want to do a one-time donation at PayPal? Podfeet.com slash PayPal. You want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack community where Bart hangs out, as he mentioned? Podfeet.com slash Slack. Want to find the Amazon affiliate links? Podfeet.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed. Hey, to anybody who listened at the end, I just realized that if I record for 24 more seconds, I can have this show be exactly two hours long. So I'm just going to talk here and blather for no apparent reason, because I don't believe we have ever hit the two hour uh, mark before. So let's see. We're down to three, two, one, zero.